learning as I get older that um, I don't have to have my finger in everything. I don't have to be uh, running everything. I don't have to be at every meeting or whatever. Um, and here's what happened. You know, this last week I was down in Louisiana with all of our network churches. We had an amazing event, amazing conference down there, which we're hosting here on Tuesday. I got back on Thursday night, just barely missed the, uh, the five-year anniversary of CR, which I heard was a great hit. Um, Friday was the Lake County Women's Center event, which was great. Um, I'm sorry, Lake County Right to Life event, uh, which was great. And then here we are today. So I had this brilliant idea. Why do I need to preach again this Sunday when I've got a deep bench of great folks who really deliver the word well? And how about this, when I've got somebody who carries in their heart a life message of healing um, broken identity? And if there's anybody that walks in this message and carries a powerful message in this particular area, it's our beloved brother, Andrew Ming. Stand to your feet and welcome Andrew as he comes to share with us this morning on identity and broken identity. And uh, you have in-laws here, so make sure. Andrew has some special folks he wants to introduce you to before he dives into the Word this morning. Yeah, my awesome mom and dad-in-law are back there. And my dad's holding my son. So go greet the Asian people in the back. So we're talking about identity today. Um, For me to even begin this talk, I had to first, you know, I'm a, I'm an educator, so I have to kind of get the definition straight before I can move on ahead. So I really wrestle with what is the definition for identity. And we use that word all the time. Identity this, identity politics, identity what. And um, so I want to first kind of really nail down the definition for identity. Uh, When I was in college, I was a senior. uh, I remember meeting this um, freshman girl um, as part of a Christian fellowship. And she stood out to me immediately because she was really, really, really skinny and frail and pale. And I didn't think much of it. It's college, whatever. Um, but then later I found out that uh, through another sister in the fellowship that she had to leave. This girl had to leave because of uh, some severe health problems. She had to take a semester off. Um, ended up she had a severe eating disorder. And um, what I was told was that she would not eat because she felt like she was really overweight. And, again, I'm not expert on mental health or eating disorder or anything like that. But at that point in my life, it was the first time it dawned upon me of someone having uh, a mismatched reality. In other words, what they see in themselves doesn't match reality. Does that make sense? Um. And not only that, there is some real-world implication to her choices, okay? So, um, her choices, because how she saw herself, she made choices of not eating, end up getting, you know, health issues and so forth, and had to leave school semester. My point is, um, just because how, what, how you see yourself is not real, the actions you take from that is real. How we see ourselves has some serious consequences. Um, so just to define identity, okay? Uh, Chase, go ahead and grab the mirror. Uh, to me, the definition of identity is how you see yourself. And for some of you who might need some practice or need to exercise this, um, I'm going to bring this mirror up here. Just a reminder. Yeah, over there, perfect. Yeah, just, if you can just lean against the... 
If you don't know how you see yourself, come take a look later. Won't, won't bother me. Come take a look at yourself. That's your identity, okay? But as we demonstrated earlier, just because you see yourself a certain way, that doesn't mean that aligns with reality, okay? Uh, for example, if you look in the mirror and you say, I am ugly, okay, what will it take for you to know that you're actually pretty or you're beautiful? Does it take for some Cosmo magazine or Hollywood or CNN to come and say, no, you are pretty? I mean, who is the authority on that? How about us all take a poll together, you know, because we might be lying to you. We might just try to make you feel better, you know what I'm saying? What does it take? Who has authority on what is actually the reality? Well, when you ask deep questions, you're going to get some deep answers, right? The only person who can truly determine what is true reality is the person who created true reality, and that's God. So your identity is how you see yourself. However, your true identity, I'm distinguishing these two, your true identity is how God sees you. Okay? Are we clear about that? Now, the truth is, most of the time, those two things are not the same. For, all, for most of us, those two things do not align. In fact, I believe one of the reasons Jesus came, one of the foremost things on his heart when he came on this earth is to make sure those two things do align. There is tremendous power when how you see yourself aligns with how God sees you. Now, one of the reasons, I think... The reason um, why those things do not generally align is because the devil is smart. He knows if he can get us to buy an identity that comes not from the heart of God, but from him, then he has control over us. Because whoever control gives you identity has control over you. Now, he fights dirty. He fights using guerrilla warfare. He doesn't fight straight up, like outright battle. He fights in the darkness, Okay. He doesn't care if you go to church all the time. He doesn't care if you read your Bible all the time. He doesn't care if you do all these good things or give money to the poor, whatever. If you still hold on to identity that he's given you, then he's won the battle. He can enslave you for life. Now, if you don't believe me, let's look at the world today. There is a shopping mall of identities, right, that you can choose from. People can pick the identities ranging from their race, their religion, sex, hobbies, nationalities to professions. How about us to where you buy your groceries? You know, I'm a Target person. I'm a Walmart person. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Aldi's person. I'm an Aldi's person. Um, <laughs> to what kind of pets you have, to the level of education. You know, people define themselves, I'm a PhD. But it's not just that. And there's people who define themselves because they never got a high school education. When they look in the mirror, they say, I'm a guy with no degree. I'm a guy with no degree. That becomes their identity. How about where you go to university? Um, you know, I'm just amazed how people can find their identity in Notre Dame even though they never attended the school. It doesn't make sense to me. I still don't understand. I mean, I went to two, two colleges, University of Richmond and Virginia Commonwealth University, and I don't even care about that. I never identify with them. Um, how about this to your sports team? Pushing on some buttons here. How about, how about what, kind of, what type of computer you use, right? I'm a PC person. I'm a Mac person. To what kind of coffee you drink. I mean, we will define ourselves using everything but what God has defined us. So here's the thing. I'm not saying there's something inherently sinful of associating yourself with some of these things. I'm saying that when you look in the mirror, 
if that's all you see, those are the predominant identity for yourself, you have been set up for failure. So here's a mirror exercise. Think about it. When you look in the mirror, when you look in the mirror this morning, when you're checking out there's something in your teeth, when you're brushing your teeth, whatever, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Who do you see? I would tell you for myself over the years, when I look in the mirror, I had to do this exercise for myself. I got to think through when I, the youngest memory when I look, I'm trying to think of how, how old was I when I first looked in the mirror? You know, what I can remember. You know, probably eight or nine or ten or something like that. Um, well, some of the people I saw was this. I saw myself as a loser. I saw myself as a fat Chinese kid. I saw myself as an overachiever at school. When I got a little older, I saw myself as a phony coward. And then even as I got a little older, after I got married, after I had a son, and a daughter and a son, uh, when I look in the mirror, I see a son. Now, I want to talk about some of the power that these false identities had over me. You know, my, my family immigrated to the United States uh, when I was eight years old. We came from Taiwan. Um, I did not assimilate well, to say the least. Uh, it turns out that you, to fit into a culture, you need, like, the right haircut and the right clothes. No one ever told me that. No one ever told my parents that. Um, I didn't speak the language. I was super shy. I hate changes, so changing culture was not fun for me. I was an easy target for the devil. Oh, I was a chubby kid, so that didn't help. Um, there were a lot of unpleasant experiences surrounding elementary school, middle school, and so forth. But I just want to name one experience that stood out particularly. Um, there's this kid. His name's Kevin Blake. He loved calling me out at the bus stops. Um, I think he was bored because once we got on the bus, he hung up, I mean, he hung up with all his friends and he totally forgot about me. Uh, but once we got off the bus, I mean, he was just in my face heckling me the whole time. So one day I decided myself, I'm like, you know what? I am not going to put up with this anymore, okay? You think I'm going to go punch in the face. I wish I did. I didn't. Um, instead, I just told myself, once I get off the bus, I'm going to run home. I don't want to hear from him. I'm just going to run home. Seemed like a great idea at the time. However, so I did. I got off the school bus. I put my backpack on. I was going to race home so I can avoid all that. And as I was running home, I heard him yell after me. He said, he's just running home so he can eat potato chips and watch TV. You know, he might as well basically launch a grenade right into my heart. I mean, those words exploded into my heart. I mean, it targeted me. I remember hearing those words, and it sunk in and stunned. Growing up, that became my first and most oppressive defining identity was that I was useless and I was a loser. You see, when you're a loser in your heart, everything you do revolved around proving to yourself that you are not a loser. It is an exhausting way to live, okay? So, you know, as a young man, I, I felt this insecurity inside. I tried to cover it up. You know, my thing was academics. So, you know, every time I do something good, for example, I'll score well on a test or something like that. I'll be like, I'll talk to myself. You guys ever talk to yourself like, yeah, Andrew, good job, self-talk. You got a good score. You must not be a loser. That show them. You're smart. You're not dumb. I mean, these things I actually say to myself. But then I would respond. My own heart would respond. No, nah, I think you just got lucky on that test. No, I didn't get lucky. I study hard. I work hard. I deserve it. Well, the only problem, Andrew, is all those other kids got 100%. They didn't even have to study for it. 
So, you know what? Stop trying to prove you're a cool kid. You're just a loser in your heart. I mean, these are the conversations I had over and over again. So after these uh, positive events in my life, I will end up spending all these hours arguing with myself, eventually get beat up and just be like, you know what? You're right. I'm still a loser. Because deep in my heart, that was my identity. There's no point covering it up. That was my identity. Another issue that I had was um, in every romantic relationship I had, my identity destroyed it. Okay, um, so there, generally, this is the process. There was an initial attraction because someone, you know, there was outward exterior. There's a polished exterior. They see, oh, they, there might be some attraction there, so we'll hang out and so forth. But as soon as we get to know each other, I mean, it was like the beast inside gets unleashed. It's like what's truly inside comes out. You know, if you are a loser in your heart, okay, this is what I learned a couple years later. You can have the most perfect girlfriend, the most beautiful, most faithful, most loyal girlfriend or wife. Um, but you will go out of your way to find flaws in her. You know why? The reason is because you will think to yourself, your heart says this, if she's so perfect, why is she dating a loser like me? So I was skeptical of every girl I dated, testing them, doubting them. Uh, super insecure every person, every time she talks to another guy, because I knew, I knew in my heart that if she ever found out what was truly in my heart, she would leave me in a second. So that was not a fun relationship. I mean, always probing, asking questions, testing, and these girls were like, you're twisted, you're messed up. And deep in my heart, I'm like, yeah, I know, but I was covering up. I didn't want to confess that. So that was one identity that oppressed me for years and years and years. I know this resonated with some of you guys in here. I know it. But then there was another identity that I picked up along the way. Now, I mentioned earlier, you know, academics was kind of my thing in high school, right? Um, seems like a positive identity, right? Academics, achievement. It ends up being one of the most toxic things in my life. You know, in high school, I was better at school than some other kids, and I was finished top of my class. When I went to college, I, I basically felt like, you know, if I had nothing else, I at least have my brains, right? At least I could do well in school. At least I could, you know... You know, find my identity in my, in my grades, basically. Well, I came to a rude awakening the first day, my freshman year, first day of school. You know, I moved myself into my dormitory. And uh, I was meeting my hallmates and so forth on our first floor. And I'm not joking you. Every single person I met that day was the valedictorian of their class. <laughs> now, mind you, I didn't go to Yale or Harvard or some Ivy League school. I went to some little known school you guys never heard of, University of Richmond. I'm like, what are you guys all doing here? Go to Harvard so I can feel good about myself. <laughs> you know, and later as, as class keep going, I met these two guys, which, you know, I mentioned first service. I hope they never listen to this podcast. Um, but these two guys end up being my uh, lifelong friends, Joe and Eric. Um, and I'll be honest, the reason I befriend them because they were as dorky as I was. If not more so. And I just figure for all the girls, they look at three of us, I won't be the worst looking one, you know? <laughs> I mean, these guys were like awkward like me. Well, I didn't realize later until I took some math class with them um, that these guys end up being like super nerds. They're like all got full rides on math scholarship to go to college. They all got perfect score on their SAT in their sleep. Um, I didn't know all that until I took this demonic class with them uh, called 
differential equations. It's funny because uh, after first service, uh, Mr. Zabel came up to me and said, DPQ, huh? He started laughing because he's an engineer. Um, I don't know what possessed me to take that class. It was the Lord because he wanted to show me some things. Uh, but I took differential equations, and I hated the class uh, because it exposed all my weakness. But the worst part was I didn't know how to do the homework assignment. So I rely on those guys, uh, Joe and Eric, um, to do my homework assignment for me. And there was one moment it just really broke me. It was like late at night, it's midnight, 1 o'clock, whatever, it's college time, time to go to bed. I just want to get those homework done so I can go to bed. But I couldn't do it. I couldn't solve this problem. It was all Greek to me. So I had to humble myself, go downstairs, knock on the door, those two guys, and, hey, how do we do this problem? Well, the problem is those two guys are so busy playing their PlayStation, they, they didn't even care the whole thing. They're like, homework, whatever. So I'm there begging them, come on, guys, get the homework done. Do solve this problem so we can go to sleep. You know, they didn't care. They're busy playing their Street Fighter. After I nagged them enough, eventually they paused the game. They didn't turn off the game. They paused the game. Took about 30 seconds to solve it. Look at me with disdain, like, how dare you interrupt our Street Fighter? And went back to the game and kept playing like nothing ever happened. I remember doing the walk of shame back up to my room thinking, man, I am not good at school. I mean, I just felt that brokenness. Those four years of high school in which I built my confidence, my identity around the fact that I'm a, I'm a smart person, I'm, a, I, I'm academic inclined, just start shedding, breaking off one by one, thinking, man, that was embarrassing. That cannot be my identity. Looking back at the first 30 years of my life, that was kind of my story. Me, with this void in my heart, looking around everywhere, trying to pick up, oh, my identity might be found in that person, or in this girl, or in this achievement, or in this ability, and so forth. And then God chasing after me, saying, don't you dare. That's a false identity. You do not have that. Just ripping it off one by one, one by one, sometimes painfully. Most of the time, painfully. He will use strategic people, circumstance, events. Um, He will not allow me to be comfortable in my false identity. So it's your turn now. What are some of your false identity? When you look in the mirror over there, what do you see? See, I'm truly convinced that God cannot bless us until we first be empty of our old identity. But the question for us is, are you allowing him to strip these? Now let's look at the life of Jesus. Even Jesus needed his true identity. Now, I want to first quickly, quickly dispel some lies of this world, okay? So the message of this world says, you need to earn your identity through your conquest. I'll say it one more time. You earn your identity through your conquest, okay? Your money, your power, your possession prove to all of us, to the world, that you are valuable, you know, we are hardwired to think this way. I mean, even now I struggle with that mentality. My worth is based on what I can conquer and what I can do. However, the kingdom of God works completely differently. You don't earn your identity. You don't pick your identity like you pick out your clothes. Your value is not based on what you can do. Instead, check this out, you inherit your identity. It's a priceless gift. It really is. Because you inherit it, it's literally priceless. I want to contrast the two kingdoms. In the kingdom of God, you don't conquer the world to get an identity. Instead, because of your identity, you are more than conquerors. And that's a huge difference. I mean, it took me years and years to really understand, to learn it, and then truly live it out. I'll say it one more time. You don't conquer the world to get an identity. Instead, because of your identity, you become more than conquerors. Let's look at Jesus. 
You know, when the adult Jesus first came onto the scene, he hasn't done anything public yet. You know, for all we know, he was just a, a lowly carpenter serving under his earthly father for 30 years. But before he began his public ministry, look what happened. Okay, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up from the water. At that moment, heaven was open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning on him. And the voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is huge. Before Jesus made any public accomplishment, God says, this is my son. I love him. He doesn't need to do anything else to earn my love for him. His identity is secure. God shouts from the heaven to his son to affirm the identity of his son. You see, only a slave would need to earn his, his master's affection by proving himself. A son can rest in the fact that his father's favor rests on him even before he did anything. Secure in his father's delight for him, Jesus was led not by the devil, but by the Holy Spirit to be initiated into his ministry. And check out his initiation. Think about this for a second. His initiation was 40 days without water, without, without food. And he, he gets to hang out with the devil for 40 days. Now, I want to talk about this concept of initiation real quick. This is important for us to understand why we need our identity so much. Now, I believe one of the most important jobs of the father is to initiate his sons and daughter. Okay? We live in a culture of uninitiated men and women who don't know their identity. But initiation looks kind of different in different culture. But this is, this is Andrew's blueprint for godly initiation. See, this resonates with you, okay? The first, start, the first step to initiation. The father sees a challenge or a test, a trial coming up for his son or daughter. So in the foresight, he gathers his kid. He trains them. He tests them. He, he, he equips them. He coaches them. He makes sure that they are ready for the task. He takes ownership to make sure his kids are ready to face the challenge. And then the night before the big game, he gathers his kids, and he has intimate time with them. This is the pep talk. He looks into their eyes, and he says, you know what, son? I am so proud of you. Notice he says, I'm so proud of you even before the test. I'm so proud of you. You have what it takes. He affirmed his son or his daughter. Now, during the test, during the challenge, during the battle, during the game, the father watches from the sideline. Now, he's shouting cheers. He's encouraging his son or daughter. But he's letting his son fight the battle because it's, it's time for his son to shine. It's time for his daughter to shine. And after the son slays the dragon, after the daughter scores a winning shot or passes the test, the father is overjoyed. He is more happy that his son passed the test than for himself. He looks at his kid in the eye and he says, I am so proud of you. I knew you have what it takes. And then they celebrate. He takes him to go get ice cream and they celebrate. Ice cream is a crucial part of initiation in my own heart. This framework for initiation, okay, is built into our hearts, Okay. Cults use it, uh, gangs use it, fraternity use it, sorority use it, okay? We used to track people, and we used it to build loyalty, okay? Because this framework is built into our hearts. All the best movie use it. Think about the best movies you've ever seen, Rocky, Lord of the Rings, Karate Kid. I mean, all these movies use this concept of initiation. Now, because God's our good father, he is always looking to initiate you. He's always looking to train you, to test you, so that you become overcomers. But in order for this process of initiation to truly work, you have to start with a foundation of love and affirmation. 
you have to start with an identity that's rooted in him, in him. If your identity is in anything else, this initiation will not work. Imagine Jesus going to the wilderness without his identity as a beloved son. Imagine if God sent you to, if you were sent to the wilderness and your identity is not found in him. All of a sudden, God says, hey, no water, no food, and you get to hang out with the devil for 40 days. What are you going to think? What kind of God does that to me? But doesn't that happen all the time? God, why would you do this to me? God, why would you do Why would you wake me up so early in the morning to train? God, everyone else gets to do this. Why can't I do this? Without the identity of a beloved son or daughter, your initiation will feel like meaningless agony. And worse yet, you will come out of it more lonely, more lost than ever before. Does that describe any of you guys? You see trials and tests coming, but instead of facing them as a son or a daughter, you're facing them with fear and anxiety. Even though you might keep beating the competition, you keep getting those promotions, you don't feel any closer to God. You just feel more lonely, more lost, more anxiety, more numbness. I'm telling you, your identity is the key to all of this. Now look at Jesus. His father knows that this big test is coming. The devil is coming to test him. So for years, he's been cultivating his son, training him, teaching him to be a son. Before the big day, he shouts from heaven and gives him an awesome pep talk. You're my son. Your identity is secure. My pleasure is in you. And his son enters into battle. You see, in the battle, check out the battle. The devil knew the source, the anchor for Jesus Christ is his identity. That's why he kept challenging and testing his identity. Twice he said to him, if you are the son of God, turn this bread into stone. If you are the son of God, throw yourself off this temple. If he can get Jesus to doubt his identity, then the devil has won. If the, if the devil can get you to doubt your identity, then he has won. That he recognized the importance of identity. Of course, Jesus didn't budge. His father trained him well. But then see what the devil did. Instead of getting him to doubt his identity, he switched tactics. The devil tried a different technique. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, the angels came and attended him. So the devil is basically saying this. If you won't doubt your identity, why don't you surrender it and take on my identity? The devil is saying, look, your daddy can't take care of you. Your identity from your dad is going to lead you to hardship, to torture, to all these different things. Let me be your dad. Let me be your daddy. Your daddy can't take care of you. I can take care of you. If you want to make a godly man angry, you know what you do? You dishonor his father. Right? Nothing will make me more upset than you dishonoring my dad or my spiritual father. And something rise up in a godly man to say, no, don't you dare make, don't you dare mock my dad. And that's what happened to Jesus. He got mad. He said, you are making fun of my dad? He said, get away from me. My dad can beat up your dad any day. Right? So you pass the test. But that test all wraps around identity. If you don't have your identity secure, man, you're, you're in a tough place. And after Jesus passed the test, then what happened? It's time for celebration. The angels came, attended him, brought him ice cream. 
Um, there's a time to celebrate, and there's a time to be restored. But see, that, wasn't, that was just round one. That whole scenario was just getting him ready for the real championship. That was just game one of the playoffs. The real championship was the cross. The same thing happened again. Right before the cross, his father affirmed him. This is my son. Listen to him. On the cross, his identity was attacked over and over again, over and over again. But because he held on to his identity as a son, never surrendering it, he overcame everything and became the champion for all of us. Jesus blazed this trail of identity initiation, and he's asking all of us to do the same. But he recognized that we can't start without getting our new identity. We can't start this initiation process properly until those two identities, how we see ourselves and how God sees us, is finally aligned. Now, Jesus recognized the urgency of our situation. In those days, just like today, there was a massive confusion of identities. People were bombarded of all kinds of labels. Gentiles, Jews, Samaritans, Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, Greeks, Romans, rich, poor, sinners, whatever. Therefore, Jesus spoke authoritatively and clearly about how your Father sees you. Three things, three ways his Heavenly Father sees you. The first way, we already talked about this. Your Heavenly Father primarily sees you, the first thing he sees you, as his treasured children. Not just his kids, his treasured kids. Matthew chapter 7. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And then Luke chapter 15, I'm not going to read the whole verse, but the story about the prodigal son. When he finally came back to the father, his father saw him, was filled with compassion, and ran to his son, threw his arm around him, and kissed him. Why would Jesus use these specific stories and examples except to say, you don't see yourself as sons, you need to. That's a line how your heavenly father sees you with how you see yourself. Now, there's some issue with this because many of us have awkward relationship with our fathers. And that judgment against our earthly fathers, bitterness, hurts, and wounds when it's not been covered by forgiveness through the blood of Jesus will hinder how we reflect and how we see our heavenly father. I ask you to not let these wounds and hurts with your earthly father plague you anymore. Allow these bitterness and hurts to be washed away by the blood of Jesus. That reconciliation with your earthly father. Again, some of it is not, not possible because they already passed away and so forth. Some of them are dealing with people who don't want to reconcile. Regardless, there needs to be forgiveness extended. There needs to be reconciliation, at least in your own heart. Because when that happens, when that's covered by the blood of Jesus, then you can allow Jesus to redefine God as your awesome father. You know, one way to reframe the gospel message is this. It's Jesus saying, he's saying, look, I know your heart. You have always longed for a father that is loving and compassionate, who pursues your heart, who is crazy about you. But this father is not just loving and kind and nice. He's also strong. He's also wise. He's also rich. But he's not just rich. He's also generous. The gospel is that father is actually real and true and aligns with every desire in your heart, and he's coming after you. So number one, God sees you as treasured children. Number two, when God looks at you, when he wakes up in the morning, he comes to your crib and looks down at you, 
He sees you not as not just his treasured children. He sees you covered in the righteousness of Christ. When we accepted the free gift of God's forgiveness and redemption through Christ, through faith, our sins are washed away. But in, to fill that vacuum in there is the righteousness of Christ credited to us. In John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. In Colossians, Paul continues, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And he continues, Before you have died, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Our life is hidden in Christ. More specifically, our life is hidden in the righteousness of Christ. If you are found in Christ, when God sees you, he no longer sees your own good deeds, your own good works. Instead, he sees Jesus. Now, I want to be very, very practical about this. This might be really hard for some of you guys. And the reason is because there is confidence in your own goodness, your own righteousness. If you have even a tiny bit of confidence in your own righteousness, then you might have a hard time embracing this identity. I know I did. For some of us, we have spent all our lives building a false identity, cultivating it, nurturing it, working hard, get up to train it, get up to mold it. We want to make sure this identity looks good. We want to make sure our accomplishment looks good. So when Christ says you need to exchange this new identity for a new one, there might be some hesitation. I get that. But in that case, you might need to go through a little bit of what I went through, which what I call is a systematic obliteration of all the things that you found your confidence in. I found that all my false identity, even the good ones, are completely bankrupt and depraved. If that's you, this is what I ask. Humble yourself before God humbles you. That's a smart thing to do. But then for other of you, who, who is ready and willing for a righteousness makeover? You know what I'm talking about? In those extreme makeovers? You're like, can't wait for a righteousness makeover. If that's the case and you're in the right place and the right time, God wants to do that today. So the second thing, he sees Christ's righteousness in you. And the third thing, which is probably the hardest to believe, I still have a hard time believing that every day. When God looks at you, he sees king. He sees queens. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Second Timothy, here's a word, trustworthy saying, if we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And Romans chapter 8 talks about we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Have you guys ever been groomed for anything before? You know, as a little kid, I always... I just always wanted somebody to come to me and say, man, there's greatness in you. I want to groom you. I want to train you for something. So imagine you're, you know, you're shooting the basket in your, you know, driveway. You know, your little boy shooting the basket in the driveway, just, you know, dreaming about hitting that winning shot. And all of a sudden the car pulls out. Phil Jackson, the legendary coach, comes out and says, I like how you made that shot. How would you like if I groom you to become the next Michael Jordan? And this guy's got, you know, he's got, he's got legit creds. He's got championship rings. Come with me. I'm going to groom you so you become the next Michael Jordan. I see that potential in you. That will be good news, right, for most of you guys. Amra would. 
So, you know, in the midst of this, you know, everyone's practicing. And after you practice, he says, you know what, Amr, I want you to um, stay after practice and shoot some extra free throws because I'm trying to groom you to be Michael Jordan, to next Michael Jordan. Are you going to complain about that? In fact, if he doesn't ask more of you, you would be like, is this for real? What's going on here? You know, if, if Michael Phelps' coach came to you and said, hey, I'm going to turn you to next Olympic uh, gold, 10 gold medals, whatever, whatever, I'm going to groom you for this greatness. But, but if, in order, you have to sacrifice some things. You, have, you can't hang out with the same people you hang out before. You, you're, you have to stick to a strict diet. You can't eat anything you want. Are you going to complain about that? Not if you want to be the next Michael Phelps. You wouldn't because you have a vision for yourself. When you look in the mirror, you see champion. When you look in the mirror, you see, you know, conqueror. You see Olympic gold medalist. So the reason, so if that's the case, why do we complain when God challenged to up our game in purity, in love, in faith, in generosity, in patience? I'll tell you why. It's because when you look in the mirror, you don't see yourself as a king. You don't see yourself as a queen. You just don't. If you don't see yourself as a beloved child, covered in the righteousness of Christ, and being groomed to reign with Christ, then you got some work to do. That's the bottom line. If you look in the mirror, you don't see those three things, then you got some work to do. I want to be super practical here. Shedding your old identity and putting it on your new self is a process. Again, for some of you, you took years and years to sculpt your old identity, and it's going to take some time for you to completely shed it. Maybe. I said maybe because it really depends on how desperate you are for this new identity. Now, I want the worship team to come on up. There's a powerful story about desperation. I want to use this story to inspire you um, about taking on your new identity. In Luke chapter 8, there was a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl about 12, was dying. So Jesus was on his way. The crowd, can you imagine, the huge crowd wanting to see a good show surround him, almost crushing him. And a woman who's been there, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus said. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are all crowding and pressing against you. In other words, everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? But Jesus said, No, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. She told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Going peace. To me, when I think desperation, I think about this, this woman. She has a condition of bleeding, which under the old Mosaic law deemed her unclean for 12 years. Can you imagine the mental, emotional anguish to be unclean for 12 years and can't have contact with anybody? But see, she didn't stay home and mope and feel bad for herself. She knew Jesus had the answer, so she went after him. Now, mind you, she was ceremonial unclean, and everyone she touches also becomes unclean. So as she's pushing through this crowd, brushing against all these people who don't know anything about her, she's making everyone else ceremonial unclean. But not only that, 
when she touched the hem of Jesus' clothes, she made Jesus' ceremonial unclean. That's why when she was called out, when Jesus said, who touched me? She was scared and trembling, and she fell at her feet, his feet, because she broke quite a few laws by doing that. But you know what? When you're desperate, those things don't matter anymore. But look at Jesus' reaction. He recognized that she had been healed physically, but emotionally, spiritually, she needed something more. So he gave it to her. He affirmed her in front of everyone. He gave her a new identity. Now, what was that identity? What did he call her? He said, daughter. I mean, I couldn't imagine this lady being much younger than Jesus. She probably was older than Jesus. That's not the point. She's not saying, oh, you're my, she's affirming her true identity and how her heavenly father saw her. Her heavenly father did not see her as a weakling, as a loser, as ugly, as unclean, as tainted. All those things thrown at her over the years. He canceled all of them. He said, daughter. Then he praised her. He praised her faith. You have enough faith to come after me. Then he blessed her, say, hey, peace, peace. Jesus wants to heal your body. But even more so, he wants to give you a new identity today. Here's my question. Are you desperate enough? Are you humble enough? And do you trust him enough to touch you? Are you desperate enough to push through the crowd to grab a piece of his cloak? Now, that's everyone stand. We're going to do this one more song. The altar is open today. You know, the Holy Spirit is burning your heart today. Come before him, desperate, and release your old identity to him. Ask him to tell you how he really actually feels about you. I mean, ask the Lord, hey, Father, tell me how you, I don't want to hear what everyone else said. I don't want to hear what Andrew has to say. You tell me how you truly feel about me. Now, if you're confused about your own identity, come take a look in the mirror. It's up here for a reason. Come take a look. What do you see? Do you see yourself as a conqueror, more than a conqueror? Do you see yourself as a king, as a treasurer's child? Do you see yourself covering the righteousness of Christ? If not, we're going to have some leaders and elders up here praying with you. If you need a renewal, if you need a breakthrough, humble yourself. Come before and ask, pray, ask the Lord to give you a new identity.